All right, everybody, welcome to another episode of The Compliance Guy. As always, I'm Sean Weiss, and I want to say thank you so much to each and every single one of you that's tuning in, logging on, and just hanging out with me and my special guest. Uh, today, I am joined by an attorney from Nexon Pruitt, who I've had an opportunity to get to know over uh, the last several weeks. And it's one of those um, relationships, dare I say, friendships that kind of, uh, you know, I feel like I've known this guy for 10 years. Um, and I'm talking about Chandler Martin of Nexon Pruitt. Uh, Chandler's based out of the Columbia, South Carolina office, and he practices in the areas of um, healthcare and general business corporate law. Um, I had my introduction to Chandler, obviously, through LinkedIn and through some published articles that he's put out there regarding an interesting topic. Uh, again, it's not the most sexy topic, but it's interesting because there's multiple aspects to it. Uh, just like healthcare, this piece of legislation has multiple tentacles. There's lots of confusion around it. And today, I want to make sure that we take the time, we go through all of the different components of this No Surprise Bill Act, and specifically the Good Faith Estimate Guidance for Physicians and Other Providers, to make sure that by the end of this podcast, y'all have a solid foundation and solid information to be able to build upon. Um, again. Chandler, uh, uh, through his legal services, uh, supported, negotiated, and facilitated the closing of numerous healthcare transactions, including the acquisitions, sales of health systems, hospitals, physician practices. Uh, some things I won't hold against him uh, is that he is a graduate of Clemson University, where he got his undergraduate in finance. Uh, good for him. He graduated summa cum laude. I can't even spell that, but pretty impressive. And then he got his law degree from the University of South Carolina Law School. So, uh, Chandler, welcome to the podcast. I know this is your uh, first experience and exposure with doing this with me. And uh, again, I want to say thank you so much to you for uh, taking time out of what I know is an extremely busy schedule because we were a little bit delayed in actually getting our own podcast started today because of how busy you are, which is always a good thing, right? Yeah, yep, no doubt. Uh, hey, Sean, I appreciate you having me. Um, glad to be able to participate in, in your podcast. I think it's really cool uh, what you're doing. Uh, listen to a bunch of episodes. Getting ready for this, of course, uh, and think it's great. So thanks again for, for having me. And uh Looking forward to talking a little bit about the No Surprises Act today and, um, you know, some unrelated stuff if we're lucky. Yeah, listen, you know, and, and this is the thing that I tell every single person that comes on to the podcast with me. I'm simply the bus driver. You're the navigator. I'm going to go wherever it is that you tell me you want to go. But I want to make sure also that people understand, you know, again, uh, Chandler, uh, you know, I, I want to make sure that people understand that you are a healthcare centered attorney. You deal with life sciences. Yeah. Yeah. Talk a little bit about yeah, your sure. practice yeah. and compliance and, and, and things that you work on. Yeah. Yeah. No, we, um, 
you know, we do try to make that clear. Uh, here at Next and Pruitt on our healthcare team, we are healthcare lawyers first and foremost. Uh, above all else, you know, I'm a regulatory compliance lawyer. So the type of things we're talking about today, the type of things you talk about on your podcast regularly, I mean, that's, that's what I do day in and day out um, and, and do a bunch of transactions and other stuff within the healthcare realm. Um, but it all starts and stops with the, the regulatory compliance piece. I mean, that's why folks um, get get healthcare lawyers involved. Um, and obviously why we, we think they should get us involved. Um, but yeah, to so do a lot of um, hopefully preemptive regulatory compliance advice where we're helping folks structure businesses, structure deals, structure arrangements with physicians, with labs, with facilities, with medical directors, all sorts of things, um, and help folks navigate uh, the various regulatory compliance issues that, that come along with that. Um, yeah, and I think, I mean, you know, with Columbia, South Carolina office, um, yeah, and yeah. sort of the hub of our, of our healthcare team, but we, we are very much healthcare lawyers. Absolutely. And I've gotten to work with some of your uh, former and current colleagues, um, especially Jenna Godlewski, a uh, great lady. Uh, she's been on the uh, Compliance Guy podcast in the past. She was on actually in season one. Uh, she did a great job. She's a great uh, uh, lady and she's a friend. And uh, again, you know, you hit the nail on the head. Uh, for me, one of the things that I say over and over again, and I can't stress this enough to the listeners, when you engage an attorney, you got to engage an attorney who focuses on healthcare, not somebody who dabbles in it. Not somebody who's worked on a case or two, because I will tell you, as somebody who's been doing this for more than 27 years now, um, there is nothing more scary to me than an attorney who does family law or civil litigations, um, deciding that they want to get into, you know, healthcare. And they take on a Katam case or they take on a healthcare fraud statute case, and it just is. They find out very quickly how overwhelming it could be. And um, again, you got to hire the right attorney for the right service. Yeah, yeah. You know, the anti-kickback statute, the Stark law, all of the reimbursement rules. I mean, it's it's brutal for those of us who do it day in and day out. Um, so, I, you know, I, I can't imagine trying to to dabble in it. And, you know, yeah, certainly. And you actually myself, speaking. But yeah, speaking of Stark, you actually wrote a really good article on Stark. Um, and we're going to have to talk about that down the road a little bit. But let's jump in. And let's talk about the No Surprise Act. Right. Because this is something that was put into play by uh, the U.S. Congress back in December of 2020. Right. And this was all part of a more consolidated act, right? Um, I think you referred to it as the Consolidated Appropriations Act of 2021. And in here, and I think the, the area that has become somewhat confusing, because uh, it was for me when I first read it, right, is the fact that there are different aspects of this Appropriations Act, right? Because the protections that are put into place under a separate act are the good faith estimate provisions, right? So those aren't even tied to the Consolidated Appropriations Act directly. It's an indirect, uh, separate act 
that was created for self-pay patients, if I'm not mistaken. Is that is that a fair assessment? Yeah, so I, I guess the the to to sort of think through the the hierarchy of it, it would be the Consolidated Appropriations Act of um, 2020, which is sort of the spending bill for the year at the federal level. And then within that, there was the No Surprises Act. And within the No Surprises Act, there are various provisions of it, um, you know, whole entire sections of law with all, you know, all sorts of different statutes within that. And um, what we'll, the, the focus of our discussion today is on one of those subsets, which is the good faith estimate requirements, which more generally, I think they referred to as the um, protections for uninsured and self-pay patients. Um, and then a separate part of the No Surprises Act includes re requirements um, for out-of-network services provided in-network facilities um, or um, emer emergency services or air ambulance services. Um, and so one section of it applies um, to, a, to a, a, a specific type of service um, where there are out-of-network services involved, uh, and then the other of it is, is much more broadly applicable, as you know, as we'll talk about. Fair um, enough. So, so, so out I, of the gate, I, yeah. And go ahead. I was going to say, yeah. So, I mean, uh, the I think um, what mostly what we'll be talking about is the good faith estimate provision, but we'd be glad to sort of talk about why we think that's that's really relevant now and why it's something that we've been writing about and talking about um, because of the other provisions that got more attention early on, um, sort of the what everyone's impression of the key parts of the No Surprises Act initially were the provisions related to um, out-of-network services provided at in-network facilities um, and then certain emergency out-of-network services and uh, services, out-of-network services provided by air ambulance providers. So that that piece of the law applies just to those providers. Um, and it, it includes protections against balance billing um, patients in those situations when the patients are out-of-network. It includes all sorts of detail uh, that the providers and the payers have to follow and um, limitations for what the patients can be billed and then ultimately how providers and payers need to work out any disputes related to the amounts that are left over. Um, and that, you know, that I believe you've done, um, I think you did a brief podcast update um, reading from um, a reference material a couple episodes back when that first uh, was went live or was going live. And so that's, you know, that's really another podcast or two in and of itself. Yeah. Um, but the, the, it's relevant for today's discussion. And one of the things that we've been making sure people are aware of is those apply in, in limited situations for certain types of providers that don't provide services at facilities like primary care physicians, for example, or chiropractors or physical therapists, those rules are almost irrelevant to certain types of providers. And so that became the No Surprises Act in their mind. And they just put it all in that box and they didn't have to worry about it because it wasn't something that was going to 
apply to them because they don't have facility-based practices. Right. Um, but the good faith estimate rules were essentially lying in wait. Um, and the, the key thing to, um, that distinguishes them is they apply very broadly. Um, and so the out-of-network rules are relevant today just to say the good faith estimate rules are not the out-of-network rules. They're separate. They apply differently. And there are a whole lot of more folks in, in healthcare that need to be aware of good faith estimate rules. Yeah. You know, and, and, and today, um, you know, before you and I uh, got connected to you do this podcast, I actually spent an hour and a half. I'm not kidding. Spent an hour and a half on the phone with United Healthcare. And I know as soon as I say UHC, I get a bunch of people rolling their eyes going, oh, good God. Sure. But, you know, um, back in February and then again in early March, I unfortunately got rushed into the hospital for emergency uh, surgery. And it's really strange because the hospital where I live is out of network as of uh, the first of this year, uh, 2022, January 1. Uh, because Wellstar uh, here in LaGrange, Georgia, just couldn't come to terms with UHC on terms and conditions and, and reimbursement rates and all that stuff. But under the No Surprise Bill Act, which has been in place since 2017 here in the state of Georgia, I'm afforded a lot of protections against hospitals that are out of network and the providers that are rendering services in these out-of-network facilities. But what was so unbearable to me is I received bills of about $70,000 for these two hospitalizations. And I'm not going to get into the cost of healthcare. Uh, I don't want to start upsetting people when I start talking about it. But it is a problem. And the fact is, I get about $70,000 worth of medical bills from West Georgia Medical Center here in LaGrange, Georgia. And I start looking at them. And of course, obviously, you know, the first thing that comes to mind is I wasn't provided any notice. I wasn't told who's in network, who's out of network. And I'm, I'm afforded certain protections. But I wound up going on and looking at how my claims were actually processed by UHC. And they were all over the place. Some of the providers who they reimbursed as in-network on some days of service, on other dates of service during that same hospitalization, they paid them as out-of-network. The hospital, on some days of my inpatient stay, they were paid as in-network. On other days, they were paid as partial out-of-network. And on other days, they were paid as out of network. And I mean, you know, so UHC, I will, I will say this. <clears throat> I had um, a patient advocacy care team member. Uh, and apparently this is a concierge type service that's available to certain people who participate with UHC. I don't know why I have this. I'm no more special than anybody else. But, heck, I took advantage of it. Spent an hour and a half on the phone with this incredible woman, Erin. She took 12 claims, totaling about $56,000, and submitted them again for adjudication 
to make sure they were processed as in network because the hospital and the providers actually were smart enough to get pre-approval. But where they were not smart on the hospital side, in my opinion, is that they went straight ahead and balanced billed me, even though UHC said you can't charge the beneficiary anything more than their copay. And so, you know, now, you know, I, I pushed the whole dispute back with UHC and I pushed it back with uh, the hospital. And I, I said to him, listen, y'all need to figure this out. When you come to an actual number, let me know and then I'll go through it. And I'll let you know whether or not I think that number is reasonable. But that's the other side, right, Chandler, to what you were just talking about. That's the other side for individuals who are insured, but they're out of network. So what we're talking about today is the other side of this. This is for the self-pay patient with respect to items and services that are being scheduled in advance. Or uh, patients are uh, inquiring about these, if you will. And this is where the guidelines for the GFE, as, as the abbreviation goes, right, the good faith estimate, this is where this comes into play. So let's talk about, if we can for a moment, please, because uh, I know you started to, let's talk about the types of healthcare providers and facilities that are actually covered under the Act's newly effective um, um, GFE. Yeah, yeah, sure. And just um, going back to your example, um, you know that that you, your personal example is is dead on. That that's a great example of the the other piece of the No Surprises Act that's gotten a lot of attention and when it would apply. Um, so the the good faith estimate portion of the No Surprises Act and, and these rules we're talking about today. They apply to all state licensed or state certified healthcare providers and facilities. And that's it for the application. So the rule is that all state licensed or state certified healthcare providers or healthcare facilities must provide a good faith estimate of the expected charges for self-paid patients or uninsured patients when they're scheduling an item or a service or when, when uh, they get a request for a good faith estimate. So, um, and this includes physician practices. This includes physician practices, right? Yes. So healthcare provider and healthcare facility, those are the two triggers, I guess, for the, for who this applies to. But if you look in the, the regulations of those definitions, it, you know, it is essentially, if you are a state licensed or state certified healthcare provider, or healthcare facility, and so it includes physician practices, hospitals, ASCs, chiropractors, physical therapists. All of those people are healthcare providers that have a, a state license. Um, so early on in in this process, in, you know, including after January one, a lot of the, the calls and emails we were getting from clients were just to confirm that these rules didn't apply to them. Uh, they'd heard somewhere um, in in um, the information sphere that these rules didn't apply to them. A consultant or accountant or somebody had had, had mentioned that, and reasonably so. I mean, there was a lot of confusion, and a lot of people uh, legitimately thought that these these didn't apply. Yeah, and absolutely. So I mean, we we had this sort of 
bear down and make sure that it was as broad as we all thought it was. And, and sure enough, it is. Um, so if so, the, the triggers, you know, as, as we would call it for when it applies is if you're a health if you're a healthcare provider or a healthcare facility and you treat patients who are either not insured or who have insurance but elect not to submit a claim for the item or service that they are scheduling or that they're asking about, then these rules apply. Gotcha. Sort of end of story. Um, and they don't apply to Medicare and Medicaid, which is, of course, the opposite of how it normally works. Yeah. Um, but they, their Medicare and Medicaid come with their own built-in uh, balance billing and notice rules and didn't, at least in theory, didn't need um, these additional parameters. So they, so, uh, they you took the words right out of my mouth. You took the words right out of my mouth because I was going to say, Chandler, what about Medicare and Medicaid? And you hit the nail on the head. They kind of have their own provisions and the way that they work with these things. So I'm glad you I'm glad you uh, preempted that. Yeah, yeah. And it's, of course, backwards from what we're used to seeing yeah. um, from, you know, federal regulations. Folks are looking to try to cut out Medicare and Medicaid to, to avoid them. Just a whole different story that, you know, oftentimes doesn't work either. But, um, yeah, so. It applies to uninsured patients or patients who do have insurance and are electing not to submit claims, um, and for any any provider type, and that that's that's really it. So if the patient the patient calls and is seeking to schedule an item or a service, now you know the de facto requirement here is you you ask if they have insurance, and a lot of this I think is already built in operationally to what practices do. Right. But just walking through it, confirm whether or not they have insurance and whether or not they want to submit a claim, and um, the process sort of goes from there. Gotcha. So let's talk about the GFE regulations, right? Because they actually establish some requirements for healthcare providers and facilities specific to self-pay patients. So your article did a great job of outlining these and. And for anybody who has not read this article, I will make sure that I attach a link to this podcast so that you can click directly on it and you can read this um, article for yourself from Chandler Martin of Next and Pruitt because it really is as well done as it is. It took me a couple of times to actually read through it to be able to say, okay, I've got it. This makes sense. This is what I'm supposed to do. If I don't do this, I have to do this. These are the 10 elements of this that have to be outlined as part of this. So let's kind of, you know, for the next several minutes, let's kind of go through these five elements that you've kind of laid out. So let's start with the notice. What is the notice and what has to be provided? Yeah, yeah. And and just taking a, a quick step back to your point, the regulations do uh, prescribe in a bunch of detail what has to be done in these situations. So you may be tempted to think, well, we, we do something like this already. So I think we're, I think we're probably covered. We have transparent pricing. The, the regulations require compliance with its specific requirements. And so these, these details are, these details are important. Um, and so the regulatory requirements start with, Sean, the notice you're asking about the practice or the, the provider or facility, they've got to post a written notice 
um, of a self-paid and uninsured patient's right to obtain a good faith estimate. Um, and they've got to they've got to post them somewhere in their in their office. They've got to post them on on their website, and then also um, post them on site where scheduling or questions about costs of items or services appear, um, which in most cases will probably overlap with in the office. Um, but the the notice needs to be clear and understandable and prominently displayed uh, and accessible to to whoever um, may need to see it, the uninsured uh, patient. And for um, anybody who's needing asking. some guidance or some help with this, in your article, you actually talk about the fact that the Department of Health and Human Services created a form notice that complies with the applicable requirements, right? Uh, I think it's called the right yeah. to receive a good faith estimate or of expected charges. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And um, help, helpfully, they have uh, they have made that available, and you can you can you can use that. And I think I think a lot of folks are using just using the the form or take it and and tinker with it uh, to to you know have a smoother delivery. But what the good thing about the form is that you can you can count on it that the content of it will presumably satisfy the requirements of, of yeah, presumably the, the, I, I like how you yeah, I like how yeah. you say that presumably very, <laughs> yeah very lawyerly um but yeah that is that is the hope that the the document that comes from the horse's mouth is is uh, enough to to comply and it and it should be and then if you have the content right then you just you know need to make sure that you've posted it on your website to the extent you have one and that you have it in the office and, and where the um, and, and, and I think, schedule. yeah, and, and Chandler, to, to the point that we were talking about earlier, I think this is an excellent opportunity where if somebody takes an HHS form and they manipulate it to the needs of their facility, their practice. This is a great opportunity to send the form to your healthcare attorney. Have you take a look at it? Have you uh, sign off on it? Bless it? Uh, whatever it is that you need to do to say yes, or, you know, look, the changes that you made structurally changed the intent of the form. You can't do that because this is what the intent is. Right. And that's where yeah. you know, people like yourself are so critical to this process. Yeah, I, 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 agree, I agree with that. Obviously I'm biased, but I think it's well worth the time, and in this case, you know, just a little bit of cost. We've looked at a bunch of them. We have our we have our own where we've taken the the HHS form and and tinkered with it a little bit in ways that we know were okay. Um, but yeah, it, it's it's well worth that that effort. Um, so can we go so, back yeah, for just I, a minute? I, yeah. So can we go back for just a moment to we were talking about self pay, right? So this is another step that you lay out, and you do a really nice job of this. Um, how does a facility and or a physician's practice make a determination as to whether or not a patient is self-pay or just simply not wanting to use their insurance? Well, I guess that would make them self-pay, right? So what is it that they have to do to determine whether a patient is self-pay or not? Yeah, so when when the patient is trying to, if it's an existing patient, you'll probably already have the information, but the, the guidance from CMS says at the point of scheduling the item or service to 
confirm with the the patient um and i think doing it on the phone is okay but just confirming that they have insurance um or they don't have insurance and then if they have insurance that they want to whether they want to submit a claim in this case um again a lot of that will probably already be built into whatever intake process you may have um but it is now it's now a a, a formal requirement because you need to know if they're uninsured and you need to know if they're seeking to not submit a claim because that initiates this process. And am I correct in, in saying that you, it's not just enough to ask the patient whether or not they're self-pay or whether or not they want to submit a claim. You got to document it somewhere in the medical record because some patients yes. have selective, yeah. uh, selective uh, memory. Yeah, no, that's exactly right. And, you know, something happens down the road and this is a new source of of um a, a disgruntled patient for lack of a better term to to possibly try to cause some problems um and you know use an undocumented phone call as a tool in their toolkit to do that so yeah definitely um you know that's one of the, the key overlays here is to document document everything and then retain all of that documentation just as you would if it were clinical documentation. Right. So on that same, on that same wave, right. One of the, one of the next things that has to be done is you have to inform the patient of their right to a good faith uh, estimate. Right. So what's involved with that? Are there any specific tie-ins to a regulation that they, you know, that our listeners need to be aware of so that they are in compliance with uh, that regulation? Yeah, so it, it is. It's a distinct step in the process that you are required to inform the uninsured or self-pay patient um, of the fact that they have a right to the good faith estimate. Um, and you can do it. You can do it orally on the phone when you talk with them. Which again, you should also document. But you're but you're required to follow up in writing um, and and give them the the written good faith good faith estimate um and and as far as so that you you have to notify them of their right if they are seeking to schedule items or services or also if they they ask about or if they request one which is sort of obvious they probably know about their right but to just to be sure cms is advised in these cases um that you should you should treat any discussion or inquiry related to cost of items or services as a request for for a good faith estimate. Um, gotcha. And, and and that that sort of sends sends you into the the next step of actually providing the good faith estimate. Right. Right. So and 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 as part of that good faith estimate, there are some time uh, time frames that come into play. If I'm not mistaken, right? I think there's three three elements that come into play can you can you go ahead and walk our our listeners through that yeah yeah for sure um and we that's one of the one of the things that we you know uh, early on as everyone was getting their arms around it the timelines were one of the things that folks found confusing so we tried to in the the article here tried to lay it out in sort of a clear way um but yeah and and it varies so for scheduling, 
there's two different timelines related to somebody who you have to give the good faith estimate to because they're scheduling an item or service. Um, and the, the timelines are if if they're scheduling it at least 10 days out, then you have to give um, you have to give them the notice within three days in the languages, not later than three business days after the date of scheduling. Um, so you have you've got you've got three days to provide it, um, and then for them to consider it, you know, you're, you're ten days out. Um, so that's critical. If, so if I, 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 I didn't mean to interrupt you. So so that's really critical, right? Because people have to pay attention to the fact that, you know. If you're scheduling these, which a lot of these elective procedures are scheduled a week to two weeks in advance, right? So and the one that you definitely. were just talking about is not later than three days, three, not three days, three business days after the date you schedule it, you have to provide that good faith estimate to the patient. Yeah, yeah. So you've got to, you know, you, you sort of got to be on the ball because of the regulatory timeline. If you if they schedule it 20 days out, it's not like you can you know you can mark it down and follow up in a week or so. You've got to get it you've got to get it out the door short shortly after, um, even in cases where it's scheduled pretty well in advance. Uh, and so the, uh, the the next timeline is cases where it's not scheduled as as well in advance. If it's if it's scheduled within um, three days, I think it's if the item or service is scheduled at least three business days in advance, um, then you've got one day to turn the, the good the good faith estimate around. You've got to provide it not later than one business day after the date of scheduling. Gotcha. Um, so again, so, incredibly important because now you're on a much shorter time frame. So if you're scheduling a procedure 72 hours out, within one business day of scheduling is when you have to turn that uh, uh, good faith estimate around to the patient. Yeah. Yeah. So, and I guess that timeline would apply between, um, between four days and, and nine days. Um, because if, if it's scheduled, if the, item or service is, is scheduled less than three business days from the date of of the of the date that you're actually going to provide the service uh then you don't have to provide a good faith estimate so that is sort of people are looking for exceptions here based on provider type or based on on things you're used to seeing these ways these rules get carved up the once it applies, the only real exception is within these timelines, and that is if it's within within three days. Gotcha. Um, in which case, so, you would expect it would probably be urgent care or emergency, something like that. Where, from a policy standpoint, and also practically, um, you know, it, it, it's it's accepted um, because it's unrealistic to expect folks to to operate within such a short time frame. Well, yeah. And I mean, especially thinking about somebody coming into an emergency department, you know, uh, uh, you know, Mr. Sean, hang on for a minute. We're going to provide you a good faith estimate before we do this cardio version on you or before. Yeah. Can you, yeah. Can, yeah. <laughs> can, can, you can you hold off on that heart attack us? for another minute <laughs> while we, uh, while we get the, uh, the, the forms ready for you? We're we're not going to give you the epinephrine at this point right now, and we're not going to give you any of this other stuff or to shock your heart and 
I mean, it, it, yeah, so I'm glad yeah, that somebody applied no, that, common sense to it. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah, my uh, my wife is a cardiac nurse, and I can I can see them standing around waiting on on this to unfold, <laughs> uh, not not going well. Yeah. Um, so, but yeah, so let's think, talk, you know, the, yeah. the time that the three days is probably a little bit arbitrary and the real emphasis there is on the situation that you're describing some sort of emergent situation where there's just, there's just not, not time, not time for, um, jumping through these hoops. And then similarly, um, you've got three days after the, the date of the request. If somebody, the other trigger here is if somebody asks for a good faith estimate, uh, you've got three days to give it to them. Gotcha. So one of the things that your article did really well um, is you laid out the fact that the good faith estimate needs to be prepared to include specific elements and disclaimers that are required by the good faith estimate regulation. And you cite the specific regulation. There's there's 10 of them, right? And they include things like the patient's name and date of birth, description of the primary item or service, uh, items, uh, itemized list of items or services. Uh, again, I'm not going to go through all 10 because I really want people to go to this uh, this article and read it because I know you have other articles that are also linked to your uh, Nexon Pruitt profile as well that deal with things like Stark and uh, the anti-kickback statutes and some other really important areas because we had new regulations go into effect in 2021 and then again in 2022 with respect to Stark. Uh, and the pods of five and and how designated health oh, services yeah. are allocated and then the changes to the anti-kickback statutes with the safe harbors. So I want to I, I don't want to give I don't want to give the chest with all the, the gold away just yet. I want people to get out there and find you on LinkedIn and find you on Nexon Pruitt's website and get an opportunity to learn about you and and to discover some of your other articles as well. I think the last thing that I want to talk about is the fact that you have to update the estimate, right? And there are some guidelines that talk about updating your uh, GFE, but it's really as as necessary. Can you can you kind of expound on that for our listeners? Yeah, yeah, and the um, and I, I guess uh, I definitely uh, uh, appreciate the the plug on the article and the other areas of 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 emphasis um and we do you know we we put um we put good effort into trying to create helpful materials so um do encourage anybody that might have an interest to go to go check go check those out um and then just briefly on the regulatory requirements you know definitely don't need to read them all i think the key point there is that they exist right, right. i mean that the that that the regulation says what needs to be in this good faith estimate um, and, and that's really the takeaway for, for that piece of it is, again, you may have some tri price transparency stuff in place. Um, and I know a, a, a lot of providers like rheumatology providers put a, put a bunch of effort into the, the financial disclosures up front, working with courses of treatment and making sure they get appropriate financial consent and things like that. And all those are helpful processes that, that you can use to fit this within your existing um, workflows, but just know that, that the level of detail here is extensive and you're probably going to need to ramp up whatever you have to comply uh, with these requirements. Yeah, um, that's a great point. The other point. key and point there is... Please. 
I was just going to say to facilitate that CMS has also provided um, an example good faith estimate, which is available online. I think we linked to it in the article. If not, you can um, you can Google it. Um, you know, CMS and good faith estimate, and it's readily available. Absolutely, and I think one of the things that you know that I would tie back into here on the um, good faith estimate is the fact that once the provider or facility provides services subject to a good faith estimate, if the actual charges are $400 or more than the charges listed in the good faith estimate, the patient may initiate a selected dispute. And I, I sit on the American Health Law Association's uh, online dispute resolution board. And um, there are groups like AHLA and others that are putting together these dispute resolution uh, uh, platforms and programs that allow patients, beneficiaries, if they feel that there is a problem with the good faith estimate, what you know, how it was generated, when it was generated, what it included or didn't include, whether or not it was in compliance with the uh, federal or state standards. Um, there is a mechanism in place for individuals to be able to file an online dispute. So, um, you know, throughout the article that Chandler has created, uh, there's just a tremendous amount of excellent information um, that really helps to clarify the good faith estimate guidance for physicians and other providers. Um, Chandler, any anything that you want to say as we start to wrap up? this uh this podcast on uh this aspect of the uh no surprise bill act yeah i think just just reiterate that this this is likely going to apply to to anybody out there that is a healthcare provider or a healthcare facility i think there's still a lot of confusion about the applicability of of these rules and um, people getting the, the various sets of provisions mixed up uh, and thinking that the applicability here is narrower than it than it actually is. And then also just to reiterate how detailed these regulations are um, in, you know, in true CMS form, there's a ton of detail here and, and they're holding folks to a pretty high standard with the turnaround times and the level of detail and the, you know, general paperwork that's going to be required. Um, and everyone will figure it out and get it built into their existing workflows. But there, if, if this isn't on your radar, there's a lot to get your arms around. Um, and, you know, we've got a bunch of experience working with what is obviously a very new law. Um, and so it'll be interesting to see how enforcement plays out. The, you know, you mentioned the final point about if it's, if your, your estimate is Essentially, if it's more than $400 off what the patient has to pay versus the estimate you gave them, then they can initiate the selected dispute resolution. Um, and so, you know, some folks may be tempted to, if they have a, you know, primary care practice where the chances of being off by $400 are very, very slim, you know, just not want to fool with this, sort of roll the dice. But there are, you know, there are other statutory and regulatory enforcement mechanisms here where, you know, they defer enforcement to the states initially, but there's also presumably will be some federal enforcement 
and nobody has any idea what that will look like at this point. Um, and so the safest course is is even if the four hundred, you know, even if the the four hundred dollars or sending it to select a dispute resolution, even if that doesn't scare you uh, in your practice for some reason, um, you know, this, the safest course here is, of course, to to comply with with all these rules. Yeah, and you know, I I know a lot of folks are probably thinking about this and they're going. Yeah, you know, they said that the the transparency rule for hospitals was really going to have a lot of teeth, and they delayed that by six months until June or July of 2022. And the majority of the hospitals out there are non-compliant; they haven't produced their readable files and et cetera. Are they really going to enforce this? I I, I think there's a, a a very strong possibility that these things are going to be enforced very very severely. Um, because, uh, I, I think, you know, these matters will get escalated up to the office of inspector general potentially for investigation on, you know, violation of a potentially a false claims act. Um, you know, speaking to the out of network side, obviously on the self-pay side, you know, there's going to be other regulatory, uh, agencies. Uh, could even be district attorneys, could be AUSAs that would get involved in these things. So to Chandler's point, be smart about this stuff. Be proactive. Don't sit back. Don't wait for something bad to happen in your practice. Don't wait for the situation to come up, and then you have to try to scramble to figure it out, and then you kind of put a half-baked document together. Work on this stuff up front, out of the gate. If you don't have time or resources internally to do it yourself, reach out to somebody like Chandler Martin. The guy knows what he's talking about. He, he's he been working on this since the act or acts have been published, and he's on top of it, as well as the other folks at Nexon Pruitt that he works with on a day-in, day-out basis. So with that said, Chandler, I want to say thank you so much for taking time out of your busy schedule today to come and hang out with me. Uh, and to uh, give our listeners a, a great amount of information uh, and and really to uh, say great job on putting out an article that was so comprehensive and, and really broke it down uh, to what the nuts and bolts are for an organization to need to be aware of. Yeah, yeah, Sean, I appreciate that and appreciate all the, the kind words about the, the, the work product. Um, and yeah, I, I will look forward to joining you, uh, again one day, hopefully, and continuing to listen to the Compliance God podcast, uh, in, in the meantime. Um, but yeah, if you or, or any of, any of the listeners out there think we might be in a position to, to help out, we, uh, we'd sure like the chance to. Absolutely. And again, to each and every single one of you tuning in, logging on, and just hanging out with us today, thank you so much, as always, for taking time out of what I know is a busy schedule for you as well. So until next time, be good to yourself, but more importantly, be good to each other. Take care. We'll see you all real soon.